and welcome to the Deep Down Bear podcast. My name's Sean, and joining me as always is the one and only Dante Boffer, Mr. Boffer, my man. How are we? Pretty good. How Pretty are you? Good. Pretty good. Playoff basketball has started. It might not feel like it, but playoff basketball has started, and I feel better than pretty good, Dante. Well, it was pretty. I'm going to refrain from using the, the phrase "pretty good" again because it was quite a good slate of games that we had today. Yeah, it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird that, it, like, you're right. It doesn't feel like playoff basketball. I had to kind of like pinch myself and remind, remind myself not not because of the lack of intensity or that like, people aren't trying or whatever. But just obviously the environment, the surrounds, you know, mm. it didn't quite feel like what, what playoff basketball was supposed to feel like. But yeah. that's 2020 and three out of the four games were incredibly compelling. Well, you know, the, the one game that I'm going to assume you're saying wasn't compelling even had a little bit of juice in it. But I think when I realized that this was playoffs where it was when I was watching the Boston-Philly game, which was, look, we may as well start there. I was watching it. I was saying, like, look, I really want to see Joel Embiid have a good game. I want to see Joel Embiid really put his imprint on the game. And when he got into a bit of foul trouble and, you know, he wasn't playing excellent he was playing like a good superstar player but not incredible it's almost like they're missing one of their superstars on their team i was i was thinking like you know it's a pretty big loss losing to one of their rivals in boston and then i had to like you pinch myself and say hang on this actually matters because philly are going to go down one to one to nothing and just imagine if philly gets eliminated in the first round where we won't know what will happen especially if Cleveland are so serious in their pursuit as we talked about last week. I think the only people that think Cleveland are serious in their pursuit is probably Cleveland. <laughs> the only people that think that they have a good package is probably Cleveland. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it's in the books. It's one nothing for for four of these series. So we're well and truly on the way. Um, let's start with Boston and Philly. Um, I, I haven't watched it. You have. Give me the the short summary. Boston looks really good. And while Philly had a bit of a spurt there, I think they went on a 13 or no run. They went on a run to close the half as well. And actually, for the, probably the first time in my life, I saw Al Horford. Um, he was like, you know, one of those double jumps, tipping up a rebound, tipping up a rebound, puts it up, grabs it up, and, you know, just keeps trying to go after the ball. And then he ends up grabbing the ball of whoever he was playing against and then lays up the ball. Obviously, two points just got an offensive rebound, and then he stood still, put down his fists, and just screamed as loud as he could at the bench. And it was like, that's really cool. Like, Al Horford's getting hype. What's going on? Like, you know, that's like, let me just, like, go back a minute and see, like, what brought him to this hype. And the hype was, look, a 10-0 run to, to close the half, but that was two of Al Horford's six points. And he finished with six, six, and seven, which is good. He was a negative 18 on the, on the game, a game where they lost by eight points. But... El Horford was hype. El Horford was trying. Uh, but Philly, you know, it's the same issue we've seen even when they had Ben Simmons. They just don't have that other guy. And Tobias Harris has his great little turnarounds. He has a nice little, like, fake and drive to the ring. But they just can't get it down because as soon as it comes down to it, you've got Furkan Korkmaz and Sheikh Milton and Alec Burks, who had a good game as well. You've got these guys trying to play against Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, who left with an injury, which we'll talk on a little bit. And Jason Tatum, who looks incredible. Yeah, if Tatum's in good nick, then I think that that's obviously going to be the Celtics are going to go as he goes. Mm. Uh, how is Kemba Walker? Because I feel like his scoring and playmaking will also be a good barometer for how well the team's playing. Yeah, well, I mean, he looked fine. He looks like he was ready, and it looks like the injury wasn't wasn't phasing him at all. But I think there's even more pressure on Kemba Walker after Gordon Hayward left with an ankle sprain. Gordon Hayward, who was 5 of 13 for 12 points in 34 minutes. But look, if, if Gordon Hayward is going to go, well, he didn't have a great game in the first game, that's going to be a little bit of playmaking. Just a, another guy who likes to dribble the ball and likes to distribute the ball. Another guy who's gone, who, you know, Boston is going to be going to have to distribute uh, those touches elsewhere. So even if Kemba is good, there's a lot of pressure on him to stay good and stay healthy for the rest of the series and, and beyond. How did the Celtics bigs look against Joel and B because I know that you know when we're talking about when we were talking about this team early in the earlier in the season and even throughout the season we're saying yeah but when they get to the postseason who's like playing the five um how did that Joel and B had 26 and 16 but mm-hmm. did did Tice Cantor and Robert Williams hold their own 
like you know that the commentators, as soon no matter who it is, as soon as you get into the game, the commentators are going to fawn over post up basketball, and they're going to go up against. They're going to obviously going to bring up the point that the Celtics don't have a superstar big, and the Sixers do, and that's something you and I have spoken about a lot on this podcast, and something that we commend Boston for doing a good good job in, which is not falling for the easy trade bait of getting a Stephen Adams or getting. I don't, even, I don't even know who else there is. Maybe a Tristan Thompson, just one of these stopgap guys. Because when you look at their roster, you immediately point towards their center position. But they were fine. Like Daniel Tice is a good player. Daniel Tice did good. Joel Embiid's obviously going to have those turnarounds where he clearly nudges you, but somehow he gets the foul call. He's just a superstar and he's a great player, and you're not going to be able to stop that. But what I thought was most interesting is that Enos the Penis can't play Cantor. Only played eight minutes for the game. And most of those eight minutes, I think six of the eight minutes came in the second half because Brad Stevens went for Robert Williams for most of the first half backup center minutes, which, you know, a bit ballsy in an actual playoff game, even though it didn't really feel like a playoff game. It was ballsy to play your young center as opposed to your veteran one. But uh, look, they won the game. It seemed to be the right choice. And while Robert Williams did get into, get into foul trouble, and he wasn't obviously the best center in the whole entire game, he played well and he played his role. And they didn't get killed for playing this rookie center. And that's probably the way that we're going to see it go. Obviously, later in the playoffs, we might not even see them play a backup center at all and just slide down whoever they want and just try and get away with not playing in as Cantor. But it's good to see that Brad Stevens isn't mucking about with that early and isn't playing Cantor in a game that does matter. The other thing as well is that they switched from resting players, you know, like bubble mode straight away to like treating it seriously and trying to get a run out in this series. So Tatum with 41 minutes and Jalen Brown with 39 and then Haywood and Walker with 35 each, Smart with 32. They're not, you know, they're not mucking about. They've gone straight for the jugular. And, you know, like I said before, it's one, it's one nothing. Like mm. that's like that. It's in the book. It's in the books. And I feel like going forward in this series, they'll probably take a big game from Embiid and say like, all right, well, Embiid can score 30. Maybe he can even score 40. Like, is Tom Harris going to get 28? And is Josh Richardson going to get, like, 28, 25? Mm-hmm. Probably not. So, they can, you know, that, that I think they feel that even if they're a disadvantage at the, at the five, no matter who they play, they'll, they'll just take a big NBA game and make anybody else on the team beat them. Just final point before we wrap up on this game. Um, Brett Brown was wearing a nice shirt and some slacks and, and nice shoes, which was a bit weird because I thought that the whole benefit of the bubble is that coaches were just going to wear their polos or training shirts or whatever it may be. And I know Brad Stevens has said to the media in the last couple of weeks that he's really happy that he gets to wear a polo because he doesn't like the rule that he has to wear a suit. But Brett Brown going with the sort of relaxed late career, coach, late coaching career, Jason Kidd uh, unbuttoned shirt. <laughs> Jason Kidd's late coaching career is the exact same as Jason Kidd's early coaching career because <laughs> he coached for like three years. <laughs> you know, I mean, remember when he was in Brooklyn, as soon as he undid his top button, he started winning games and people correlated it to his, uh, to his dress. Do you not remember that? The, on- the only thing that I that I remember about Jason Kidd in Brooklyn is when he deliberately spilled Gatorade on himself and on the court so that he could get an extra time out at the end of the game. I seriously think that more coaches should do that. And I think there is there is a market inefficiency when it comes to getting timeouts and sneaky little timeouts and running up sneaky plays when you can't because it's very hard for the refs to sort of penalise you for that. Uh, and I know I'm clearly talking out my ass. I think, but I think there is some real, there's something to be gained from doing that. But that's just my opinion. Market inefficiency for cheating. <laughs> it's not cheating. It's gaining an advantage that others don't see. <laughs> 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 okay. First game of the day, Dante, which was Denver beating Utah in overtime. I'm gonna watch this after we record the pod because, believe it or not, I wasn't awake at three in the morning. But what went on, Dante? Well. It was a good game, obviously, going to overtime. And Spider, Mitchell putting up 57 points, which is a career high for him and a Jazz playoff high. Um, breaking one, a record that was set by Carmelo. But the big story around the Jazz so far, or in the last few days, has been that Mike Conley has gone back to Ohio. So he's left the bubble for the birth of his son, who uh, was born. His name's Elijah. He's really cute. But Conley's expected to miss at least three games. 
So that's a big blow with the playoffs you know, starting right now. He, he might not, if things go badly, he might not even play uh, if Denver gets up. But I was really interested to see how the Jazz were looking to replace his production in this game. And they've effectively done that by splitting ball handling duties between Ingles and Mitchell. Uh, Ingles, in particular, was really aggressive, um, drive and kick, and then just like dribbling into threes. And Mitchell obviously put up 57 points, which is a career and Jazz playoff high. So pretty big production from both of them, but it still wasn't enough. And I'm just concerned going forward that we may, because Mitchell's going to have to have the ball in his hand so much, it might make it in a, kind of in a similar way to what I just mentioned with Embiid. I think maybe Denver will say, you know, if Mitchell's going to have a big series and he's going to average 40, then that's okay. Because we'll just let him, like, we'll let him score. Who else is going to do it? Like, we're going to have to try and um, stop him from bringing other players in. And it's like Mitchell's job is going to not only be to carry the scoring load, but playing as the nominal point guard with Conley gone, he's going to have to get Royce O'Neal and all these other guys involved. And it's, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not super optimistic based on what I saw today. And for their part, the Nuggets were really, really good. Jamal Murray was. Electric, he had 36, and Jokic was just not intimidated by Gobert at all. Just took it to him right from the very get-go and, you know, um, looking to score, being aggressive, facilitating all the usual Jokic things. I think, that, yeah, the Nuggets were definitely, definitely the better team. Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, it's it's great to say that they're going to replace Mike Conley and we've seen that in the first like replace his production, but it's obviously you're not going to get 57 points every night from one of your leading scorers, which is more than enough going to make up for what Conley brings. So whether the whether Donovan Mitchell can you know get another 57 points or what if he regresses to the mean and scores 30 points maybe. So we might see a bit of a blowout if that did happen, you reckon? Yeah, I think even if he doesn't, I think, I mean, like obviously he's not going to get 57 like you say, but I think he it's not out of the realm of possibility that with the ball in his hand, he's more, he's going to average like 35, 40 mm-hmm. in this series. I could definitely see him doing it, but I, I don't think that that is going to worry Denver too much. Just because I think they're going to say if the scoring is all concentrated in one guy, let him score and let's just make sure that other, that other people don't. Mm-hmm. And so there's no one on there's no one on this Jazz team who you really you're intimidated by as like a secondary scoring option. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though Gobert is like second in the league in field goal percentage, <laughs> yeah, like the most base level you, take you, I could ever have. <laughs> <laughs> very base level. Just there's no there's no one aside from Ingles who you really worry about shot creation. Yeah, and even Ingles. When you really decide, like, if you really decide that we have to stop Ingles, you just play Jeremy Grant and stick him on Ingles the entire time and you mitigate Ingles that way. And then it's like, who else? Are you worried about O'Neal? Are you worried about Jordan Clarkson? Mm. Like, not, not worried about them that they're going to swing a game. Um, and I think the fact that Denver went deep as well in their rotation. So they're clearly, they clearly just have, you know, um, the ability to throw a bunch of different looks out there, and I think with the way that the Jazz are going to have to going to have to play through Mitchell, they can just cycle bodies through him as the series goes on, and they've got a bunch of dudes who you might like defending him. So mm-hmm. uh, it was an overtime an overtime game, but I I would be I would be pretty shocked if this went like if this went to six games. Like I I can see it being a sweep or five games. Yeah, which is awesome um, for someone like me who's going for Denver in these playoffs. Um, could I just say one more thing on the baby front? Uh, Doris Burke had a point during the during the Boston game, which was that Gordon Hayward's going to have to miss uh, a little bit of time as he and his wife are expecting a child in September. And while look, I don't know who else is having a kid, I don't keep up with entertainment news and what's happening in their families, but Doris made a point that all these guys had essentially planned to have a kid during the off season because they should be done by now. But obviously that has backfired for these guys because now they're going to have to leave the bubble to be with their families. And look, I don't know if this is another market inefficiency, but babies that were planned to happen during the off season, um, I think we should really start to look at who is expecting because what if there's some guy who's supposed to be in the finals who 
might have to leave. Is that a, am I getting into a little bit of conjecture, which I just did 15 minutes ago? <laughs> you might be getting into conjecture, but didn't Fred Van Vliet last year not leave, but didn't he just decide that he was staying in the playoffs? I think he had off days where he was allowed to leave uh, like the stadium and the, the surrounding hotels as well, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. But didn't have any time off. So, you know, maybe they're tying in that baby juice. Maybe Conley and Hayward are both going to come back and it's going to be like, like 2016 Conley and Hayward. That would be nice. Um, and Dante, just want to give us a couple of points on Toronto-Brooklyn. I want to get through this game as fast as possible. As <laughs> um, I mentioned, father slash God, Fred Van Vliet, um, reprised his last year's playoff form, hitting 8 of 10 from deep um, with 30 points. Ibaka had 22, and Lowry and Siakam just kind of like did their thing, cruised. I think Siakam had 18 and Lowry had 16. So, you know, just kind of chilling. Um, Brooklyn's very overmatched in this, in, this, uh, in this game. And the only reason why Brooklyn's been compelling in the bubble has been Calais Levert. And again, like I, like I just mentioned, um, in, in the sense of Denver having bodies to throw at Donovan Mitchell, the Raptors have elite defenders that they can throw at Kyrie so that they can just throw Siakam, OG Ananobi, um, yeah, all day long. So, no, I think I, this is this is this has got for nothing written all over it. Mm, yeah, um, hottest take you've had. Now let's move on to the Dallas game, which was, in my opinion, the most interesting game of them all because what Dallas went down was it eleven nil or thirteen nil. Um, at the start of the game and then managed to claw their way back in the first quarter and ended up winning the first quarter 38 to 34. But Dante, what, what I want to talk about is what are your, what's your thoughts on the, the Kristaps Porzingis ejection and you know, two technicals. Should it have happened and should he have, did he warrant the first one? Or did he warrant the second one? I think there's been universal outcry about this tech call. I don't think like how either of them text, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Um, especially the second one. I mean, the second one, he he really didn't do much. He really, really didn't do much. He's gone over to defend Luca after Marcus Morris is just like is just like grabbing Luca, mm. um, and then a couple other players have come into like into the fray, and all pausing has done is just kind of like grab someone else's arm and try and like move it out of the way to like get to Luca. And they've teed him up and he's gone. And what was that? It was a couple of minutes into the third quarter. So he basically misses half the game. Yeah, um, 20 minutes. And yeah, and, and I mean, it was a, like, it was a close game when he went out and it was a close game at the end of the game when they really could have used someone else except Tim Hardaway with the ball, you know, in their hands. So, uh, yeah, unfortunate. And I think, yeah, uh, everyone who watched it, probably has the same take unless they're Clippers fans. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Jeff Van Gundy-isms, which, you know, you, you don't like to see too many of and everyone was siding with him because he has technicals even if someone just punched someone right in the face. But that's, uh, it's not like 90s basketball, you know, you always hear that. But, um, yeah, the game was interesting. I think one thing we can take away from this is this going to be an incredible series because as soon as Chris Tapps comes back, this is obviously going to be full, you know, essentially a fully healthy and fully healthy and fully, like, developed squads going up against each other and I'm really excited to see six more games of this. Yeah, it's going to be great. It was, it, was, it was so compelling and both teams had big leads as well. You mentioned that the Clippers got out to a big lead and then the Mavs pulled them back and got out to like a 13 or 14 point lead of their own um, just before half time and then the second half it was just like rope-a-dope. It was just tight the whole time mm. um, but I think yeah, I think ominous that Kawhi and PG just in the second half has kind of did like your turn, my turn. And they were like, we'll, we'll each like dominate the game for four minutes but to the time. Um, and there's no one who could, no one on D for Dallas who could really, who could really do much about it. Um, Dorian yeah. is probably their best wing defender, but then you're down to Tim Hardaway defending probably PG. And PG knew that that was going to work out well for him. And he iced the game with a pull-up three with, 40 seconds left. 
yeah awesome three um and we were actually messaging at the time and your tv is a minute faster than mine so you just messaged me saying you know pg's asked the game without three and i'm like what are you talking about dallas's ball so thanks for that but um did you see uh, a michael kid gilchrist appearance I just want to say that it's not my fault that you're watching like live TV a minute behind and messaging in a group in a group chat <laughs> with three other people. Yeah, I dig my own grave. Um, Michael did Gilchrist with two threes. Uh, the other, he took uh, took three of them. So there you go. Michael Kid Gilchrist is a sixty percent three point shooter. Um, and there was one play that was really someone tell that to the Charlotte Bobcats in two thousand and eleven. <laughs> there was one play that was really telling for me, which was where. Uh, Kawhi had just been passed the ball out of an offensive rebound, dribbled in, did his little fake where he sort of fakes with his whole upper torso. Maxi Kleber, nice and disciplined, just sits there, sticks a hand up, and Kawhi takes the shot. And as he's in the air, you can see Kleber's hand has gone through the sort of hole that he creates when you're holding the ball. His sort of wrist is over the face of Kawhi, and he just rises, takes the jumper, and it goes in perfectly. And I'm like, oh, I've completely forgotten what playoff Kawhi Leonard is. And I'm really, really excited to see how far he goes. Yeah, it's just unstoppable. Um, just before we finish this up, I want to talk. I want to say two things. The first one, I don't really want to have a discussion about it. I just want to say that there's too much Tim Hardaway on this team, especially after KP went out. There's a couple of couple of series in the start of the fourth quarter where Tim Hardaway was like, "Yeah, I'm an all star," and just behaved like it. Um, and I was like, "Give like give the ball a to somebody else." B Luca was on the court, so he give the ball to Luca. And then the second thing that I want to say um, concerns playoff Kawhi. And on the NBA Instagram pregame, they're like they're showing this video of Kawhi like holding an iPad, walking. <laughs> walking into the stadium with his headphones on and the NBA account is like like playoff Kawhi locked in because he's just staring at the iPad and then he walks past the camera and he's looking at the fucking home screen. Like he's looking at like his <laughs> list of apps. And <laughs> just just to just to top it off, he hasn't even changed his wallpaper. He's got the generic Apple wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally like he could have picked up his iPad. He could have picked up his iPad from the <laughs> Apple shop like on the yeah. web. Yeah, that was pretty ridiculous. And like, you know, it was a bit tongue in cheek, of course, Kawhi's locked in and he's also half robot. But yeah, that was weird. Um, I know you don't want to talk about the Tim Hardaway thing, but I am happy to talk about this at a later podcast because I think that, look, yeah, it might have been too much Tim Hardaway, but I think that you need a lot of Tim Hardaway in this series. But we will talk about that because we've got six more games of this. Uh, would you predict this is going to go to seven if, you're, if you've got money on it? Which, uh, what are you going to predict? Uh, I think it'll go. I think it'll go six. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think it will go six because they're going to have KP and it'll be a tighter game. But um, Kawhi and PJ looked in good nick and they didn't even really have to break that much of a sweat in this game. I think that that's ominous. I think they kind of viewing them as like sharks circling in the water. Um, and you know, obviously Dallas is good enough to, I think, to take a couple of games, but I think seven might be a stretch. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, if it does go to seven, the Clippers get home court advantage. So that's always the thing. So there you are. <laughs> the second cheapest joke I've made all day. Well, Dante, let's move on to some news. Let's kick uh, it off with news that was somewhat shocking, but we did see smoke a couple of days earlier that coming from Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN that Elvin Gentry has been fired as a coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. If you had heard his comments a couple of days before the season finished, you could sort of read the tea leaves where he was saying, look, I'm the coach of this team until until I'm no longer the coach. Very low energy New Orleans uh, team. I think there was a report that Lonzo Ball had looked checked out for most of the bubble, so maybe the players knew this was coming before something else. We obviously talked a lot about Zion's body language, and a bit of a disappointment that uh, you you mentioned on when you were messaging me the other day that Elvin Gentry has been the coach of the Pelicans for five years, and look, five years is a long time, especially in basketball. But imagine the imagine looking at the team that he inherited. So day one of his first day coaching, he's got Anthony Davis and what Tyreek Evans and Drew Holiday and he finishes with like the Jackson Hayes uh 
what maybe Sindoria Stormer, I can't even remember who was on that team, but after they were arresting everyone, just imagine, you know, a bit of a bit of a sad story. Uh did they let him go too early, Dante? My heart wants to say yes, but my head wants to say that he only won more than thirty four games once in five years. Um <laughs> is, yeah. and yes, yeah, so, I mean I mean you're right in that that what you just mentioned is kind of like the theme for his entire tenure in New Orleans because it's always like oh you've got like this one like great young player like let, like obviously Anthony Davis like let's see what we can build around him and Pacers never fit he was injured for a lot of the early years and they yeah it just kind of never eventuated it just kind of didn't happen and I still think Alvin Gentry is a really good coach but at the same time you know one winning season in five is is not good. It's just tough for him that he's probably going to have to watch some other guy come in and coach his team next season. And he's probably going to feel a bit like Dwayne Casey when Dwayne Casey left the Raptors and Nick Nurse took over and then won a fucking championship the year later. Not to say that the Pelicans are going to win the chip, but you would imagine that next year's Pelicans will be better than this year's Pelicans and Elvin Gentry profiles are like the big loser. Yeah, well, so Gentry came in as one of the hottest assistants to get the job. That was the guy that everyone was looking for. He was obviously the assistant coach for the champion Golden State Warriors, first championship in 40 years. And like he could, he had his pickings. Like He could choose anywhere he wants to go. He had just rehabilitated his value. He really wanted to be a head coach. And he picked that team and he picked New Orleans because he wanted to rise with them. And in the end, it only ended up being one. Like he won one series against Portland, which is like, you know, take it as it is. But I just want to talk about their next coach because New Orleans and, and David Griffin have been really smart about this. And like, I, I'm happy to say they haven't made like a stupid move yet. I wasn't a big fan of the Jackson Hayes pick, but look, they haven't done anything drastically wrong. And I think this is the first really big move that can go wrong because if they fire Elvin Gentry, a guy who by all accounts is a good coach, like, yes, you say he didn't get a winning season four out of five years, but he, we, he has a proven track record of being good and he hasn't had a fully healthy roster to deal with for most of the seasons that he's been a coach. And I think there's sort of two, two options that can go down here. They can go get like an old established veteran, whether that be, God, I don't even know who's a, like a Tom Thibodeau type, or they can go the development type. They can say, all right, well, who's the next Mike Budenholzer? Who's the next Steve Kerr? And obviously I don't think Pop's got any more children hanging around, but is it, you know, one of those next assistant whiz kids, which you've written here in our notes. Um, and I think, look, that would be a, that would be a wise choice to go because if you're picking one of the next whiz kids and you're picking one of the next Brad Stevens, you've obviously got a really high ceiling there, but you could get the next James Borrego where it's like, Oh, we don't really know what he is after all these years and you could go wrong. So they've, they're sort of leaving, in my opinion, they're leaving Elvin Gentry who has a very defined style and a very fast style, which would obviously be really fun next to Lonzo and Zion. And it was fun for a year, but I think they're, let's say you're rating coaches out of 10, you're letting go of a six with the possibility of getting a 10. But if they get this wrong, let's say they get a two out of 10, they're going to be wasting however many years of Zion's prime because his prime might be a lot earlier than we realize. They're going to be wasting all these years of Zion's prime with a subpar coach, which is the risk everyone takes when they hire a coach. But best of luck to David Griffin for finding one. Yeah, I think I think when anyone's come available, like when any position has come available or speculation has um, occurred over the last like eight months, the first two people that people want to talk about is Ty Lue and Jason Kidd, both of whom are probably going to be in consideration for this job, but neither of whom I'm prepared to say are good coaches, right? Like Jason Kidd's one, Jason Kidd two um, coaching stops were Brooklyn where he pretty much alienated himself from the team and the entire organization uh, and then forced his way to Milwaukee where he had Giannis and pretty much like the team that, he, that that's, that's here now, you know, like had Giannis and Chris Middleton, mm. bunch of veterans and couldn't really do anything with it and, and saw, you know, he gets by, Budenholzer comes in and bam, there's a contender. Mm. So are either of those coaches good coaches? That's not to say that you should keep Gentry if, you know, you think that, there's someone better, but I think if, if it's either of those two, I'd be skeptical that they've made an upgrade. And then the other name that's getting thrown around is Jacques Vaughan, who was nominated for coach of the bubble with <laughs> the 
um, with the upstart slash overmatched Brooklyn Nets. And again, like Jacques Vaughn's a dude who, like all of these coaches should probably get a second, like like an NBA coach in general should probably get a second chance if they like have a like a rough first go, you know. Uh, and most of them do, but Jacques Vaughn's first go was with the Magic, where he like, he he didn't even crack like a thirty percent winning record. He was awful um, with the Magic, and and has been an assistant since. So again, I'd be skeptical that Jacques Vaughn would be the the right answer. And then you you get into the territory of looking at who's the next, you know, who's the next weird kid assistant. Um, and you mentioned. Um, you mentioned Pop's children. The the next in line for um, a coach, like a head coaching role from the Pop coaching tree is Aimee Yudoka, um, who Assistant I don't know much Philly. about, but pardon? Assistant Philly. I was just backing you up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but, I mean, he could be a James Borrego. He could be a, a Budenholzer, mm. but he could be a Borrego and you know like we're never going to sports pundits to sit here and say they've made the right call um, yeah it's difficult yeah, the one guy that we haven't mentioned is, is Kenny Atkinson who I think would be a fun a fun coach here um, considering the work that he did in Brooklyn with a young team to come in here and, and try and like build on everything that like, like all the infrastructure that's here, I think that could be a fun fit. Yeah, just one final point before we move on. Uh, on Elvin Gentry's coaching staff, there is Jeff Bezelik, known as one of the smartest defensive guys in the NBA, and Fred Vinson, who was mostly attributed for the improvement for Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball's shooting. And usually whenever a new head coach comes in, they get to choose their guys and fill out their coaching roster with their all their assistants. But Look, if, if New Orleans say, bring in a new guy and say to the new guy or girl, uh, look, you can't pick all of your assistant coaches because we want to keep one of these guys. Or what if one of these guys in Bizdelic and Vincent say, well, we don't want to be here anymore because we were here under Elvin Gentry's you know, tutelage. Um, what does that mean for the development of the young guys? Not to say, I'm not going to say that Brendan Ingram's just going to immediately drop his three-point shooting, but, you know, Again, he was attributed a lot to the improvement. So what happens when you get rid of this guy or if, if the guy leaves because he doesn't want to be an assistant under a guy that isn't Elvin or even on top of that, what if he wants to be the head coach? I don't think either of those guys will be in line for head coach consideration. I think um, Bizdelic retired a few years ago and had to be like coaxed back out of retirement. So I don't think yeah. he's... Um, in the running so, look, and, and I mean, you might want to take that with a grain of salt because he was coaxed back out of retirement by Mike D'Antoni and then he ended up on New Orleans. So he was well coached. Yeah, well, he got fired. Yeah. Well uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Bezalik is kind of like the defensive genius in terms of like scheme um, mm-hmm. rather than necessarily like the nuts and bolts like day to day coaching of it. Offense in Golden State. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of more the infrastructure rather than the actual application of it. And I mean, New Orleans. I'm just. I've just looked up the numbers now. According to Clean the Glass, New Orleans were 19th in defense this year. So, if if the new coach wants to bring in someone who he thinks he can get him into the top half, then you know, do it. It's, yeah, it's hard to point to your your record last year. All right, well, let's move on to another coach, which is. Uh, Jim Boylan has finally been fired for, uh, by the Chicago Bulls. This is coming from Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN. And look, uh, I, among other people, said, why are they doing this now? Because there was a report last week that said that Chicago are looking to keep Jim Boylan. And the report was, I don't have it in front of me, but the report, the report roughly said that because he's getting paid very little and he is one of the cheapest uh, head coaches in the league. Chicago have been known to be a bit on the cheap side. Um, Arturis Karnaschovas came out and said that the reason they fired him when they did a couple of days ago is because it was, quote, the official start of the offseason, which is technically right because, look, the playoffs did start. That technically illuminates 15 teams, sorry, 14 teams. But, look, Chicago have been eliminated well before then, and even when the season was on, they were eliminated well before then. So, look, it's they've done it. Nah, they've they've done the right thing. Might not have been the greatest timing. Could have could have been better. But good on Karnashovas for making a move that is widely seen as the correct move. 
I think, like, is there anyone in the NBA community who's like, oh, what? They fired Boylan. Why'd they do that? <laughs> um, universally acclaimed. Uh, Jerry, what's the, name? what's the name of the owner? Jerry Reinsdorf, who likes to keep his money in his pockets. There's that. <laughs> he'd, he'd make more money to have in his pockets if the team won, which they weren't going to do with a bloke who went 39 and 83 through two seasons. Um, I think I, I, I was reading somewhere that I wish I could attribute it. I don't know who wrote it, but that one of the reasons why they, why kind of service slash big Artie, as we like to call him on the pod, didn't want to, didn't want to fire Boylan earlier was because they were, there was no like impetus. There was no, vacancies you know it wasn't really competing with anyone so he's just kind of like biding his time assessing the market assessing everything but like as soon as gentry got fired um it's like oh no like all of a sudden there's another young team offering a good you know like a, a good situation for a coach like now we have competition like let's just like kick it into overdrive um and yeah i mean getting rid of boylan's definitely definitely the next um Sorry, that definitely the right call. Do you think that there could be some dots to connect between Gentry and Chicago? Do you think that that might be a way that they look to go? And if so, do you think that that would be good? I don't think there's any visible dots. I wrote that in our notes because I think it would be fun. Um, just to, I think it's fun to throw a fast coach, air quotes, fast coach uh, into any situation with young players. Uh, and look, I'm, I'm just happy to be able to look at the Chicago team with fresh new eyes. You know, obviously they were one of my cheeky picks at the start of the season to play well, and I was incredibly wrong. But I think this would be, you know, this, this is the sort of team with heaps of young guys. Uh, they, they've all got upside. You know, they might have had a couple of down seasons here or there. Cough, Larry Markinen, but I, you know, there's nothing to say they can't be good and they can't be fun. And I'd love to see him in a fast system. But then again, air quotes on fast, whatever that means. I think this team can be good because Markinen, we've seen him be good. And whilst he, you know, he, he needs to improve as a rebounder and he needs to improve as a defender, when he was good, he was pretty dynamic scoring uh, scoring option. And it's not hard to see. Uh, a future in which Larry Markin could be averaging, you know, like 22, 23, 24 points. Mm. And we haven't really seen much of the Markin and Wendell Carter Jr. front court, uh, in part because they've both been so injured over the last 18 months. So health mm. is going to be a big part of the success that this team has, um, success or not. But I think, that there's, I think there's stuff there. Zach Levine, I don't know that you view him necessarily. Well, I mean, I know we certainly don't view him as part of the, you know, like someone who should be kept around. But he, he would fetch an interesting trade return, uh, which would, you know, put you in a pretty pretty decent position. Kobe White is decent mm. uh, and, you know, intriguing. I think there's definitely something appealing here. Um, and I think this could be another, another spot that Kenny Atkinson could be in consideration for because, you know, like he, he just seems like a natural coach to kind of like come in and um, fix what has truly been a pretty depressing franchise for the last like probably three years. Yeah, I think um, we're going to enter an off-season where you and I mock Kenny Atkinson to every single available coaching position and some that even have coaches. Yeah, well, speaking of one that um, even has coaches, the Sacramento Kings, I think, their coach is still around, but their GM is not. Vlade Divac um, stepped away from the team slash resigned slash was mm. pushed out by Joe Dumas. Sean, can you please read the tea leaves for me? <laughs> well, just following Vlade Divac, this is coming from Sam Amick of The Athletic. Um, Peja Stoyakovic also left. And Amick in the article where he reported this wrote that Joe Dumas, since joining the organization as a in an advisory role, in 2017 has sort of been angling for that role. And that's very opinion-based, but, you know, Sam Amick is a reporter that you and I both trust. And he is, he's saying this from multiple sources, saying that Joe has slowly morphed his way into the inner circle in Sacramento. And this is a guy who lost his job in Detroit in 2014. And while he was there for their title run in 2004, he was also there for the Josh, Josh Smith contract, which Detroit just stopped paying. I think it was this season or last season, which is crazy to think because that is uh, 
look, that's, that's almost ancient history. Um, Josh Smith and his, his impeccable deep long twos, I guess you could say the deep two. But I, <laughs> look, let's say, let's say Dumas is good because just for argument's sake, I really don't like that if the Kings do go this way. So they're currently searching for the next general manager to come under Joe Dumas, who has assumed the role as vice president of basketball operations. Um, I think they would be incredibly silly not to look elsewhere and not to interview widely, especially because the last guy that they sort of promoted internally to take over this same role was Vlade Divac. And we all know how poorly that went. And, Look, the, the last guy that they interviewed and brought in was Pete D'Alessandro, who came over from Denver, and I think he's back in Denver now anyway. And they brought in D'Alessandro. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Dante, you're the, you're the apostrophe name expert. Is that right? D'Alessandro. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, they brought him in after they had already decided to hire Mike Malone as the coach. So you bring in a guy and saying, oh, by the way, your coach is already set. You don't get to choose your coach. So like that was almost doomed from the, from the moment it started. But I think the Kings would be very wise to at least look elsewhere and try and at least interview other people before giving it to a guy and falling into the same rabbit hole that they fell into with Dibach. Not that he can't be good, but you know, it's, it's never good to, just promote a guy without even looking at the other options. And one funny thing that I'd like to point to is that Joe Dumas was with Detroit when they drafted Darko Milicic, one of the more influenced picks and worst number two overall picks of all time. And while probably not as damning as that, uh, we're seeing a little bit of a similar storyline with Marvin Bagley being drafted uh, ahead of Luka Doncic. And behind uh, DeAndre Ayton, however you want to take that last point. Well, I don't want to take that last point <laughs> at all. Um, I don't think that taking Bagley, at least so far, that taking Bagley ahead of Doncic uh, is less damning. It's less damning than the Darko pick because but the Darko pick is damning because he's he could have had Chris Bosch or Carmelo Anthony. Yeah, now, uh, he's also a farmer. I think he's just <laughs> fucked off somewhere in Serbia and he's just got a farm. Um, but with, with with Bagley, I mean, Don, Doncic is an MVP is an MVP candidate. So like Doncic, so far, if I had to uh, if I had to wager, I would say that um, he's going to be better than Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, or Carmelo Anthony. Was well, averaging forty two points in the playoffs, man. His career Um and even if you want to, like, even if you want to say what you want to say about, like, oh, but like this or that, Marvin Bagley, Trey Young is there as well. And I know Trey Young's not necessarily fit because they had, um, they had Darren Fox, but there's quality players going after the Bagley pick. And the worst thing with the Bagley pick is that it's not even that he's been bad. It's not even that he's been injured. It's been that when he has played, they, like, there's no plan for how to use him is he a four is he a five is he good at like is he good enough to defend fives is he quick enough to play the four on the perimeter like there's all of these questions about a dude who's going into his third season and you don't even know you've only got him under team control for two more years and you have no idea like at the end of this season they have to pick up his option you know Mm. so it, it's just, it's just it's the the Bagley situation is is quite bad. It's not um, it's not uh, yeah, it's not not harmless at all. I think the weirdest thing with this for me with Divac leaving is that Luke Watson's still the coach. Yeah, yeah, and look, I still have hope in Luke Walton being a good head coach, but yeah, it's it doesn't look good for him because usually when guys come in, like we just mentioned with Mike Malone, usually when guys come in, they sorry GMs come in they want to replace the coaching staff and bring in a guy that aligns with their vision so not looking good for Luke Walton but look I think we started off this podcast just over a year ago and there was a lot of king slander because look it's an easy cheap and very efficient joke but I think since we had a friend of the podcast Alessio on uh, pretty early on we've sort of eased up on the king's take and we even actually went the opposite way and the kings were like a sneaky pick to be good this season which didn't work well but look you know we're 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 here to be held accountable for our views as well but 
<laughs> this is getting quite hard. Uh, <laughs> I, I apologise to friend of the pod, uh, Alessio, for his unwavering support for the Kings. But look, this is uh, this is difficult because on the same day that this was reported, I'm looking I'm looking at my team, um, the Golden State Warriors, where it's like, oh, what's news in the Golden State Warriors world? It's like, oh, well, they're two-time MVP, three-time champion, Steph Curry. Uh, the news is that he's going to represent them at the draft lottery. It's like, oh, oh pretty, pretty damning news right there and really hard to take in when I wake up in the morning. But anyway, should we move on, Dante? <laughs> Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Last piece of news, Dante. You uh, you give it to us because you are the mid-season tournament guy. So Mark Stein from the New York Times is reporting that Adam Silva, quote, and I quote, badly <laughs> wants his thirsty Sean for a mid-season tournament and the continuation of the playing games that we've seen in the bubble so far. Um, the bubble, play, I think the playing has been kind of like universally well received and it was quite exciting and the actual quote like it added a new narrative subplot mm. for the end of the season where it's like oh who's going to finish ninth who's going to get the like is it going to be memphis or portland that gets the eighth seed and then gets like home court advantage in the like in the play-in mm. um so i think that that would be a decent shout to continue now that there's been a uh you know like a concrete example of what um, of what it could look like. And then the other thing that came out in the, in the Stein report was that um, a, like a, a European Cup-style mid-season tournament um, was was discussed amongst league executives but didn't get enough support to be put to a vote, so it was put on the back burner. But if Silver is really this thirsty for a mid-season tournament, I can definitely imagine it being put back on the agenda at the league meetings over the, uh, over the off-season. And obviously, anybody who reads the blog, um, the deep2medium.com, um, knows that I'm a big proponent of a, a European Cup-style mid-season tournament. Um, and I think that it'd be, it'd be a great idea. I think it'd be really exciting. What say you, Sean? Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with everything you wrote in your article. But when it comes to the play-in tournament uh, that we saw this season, I think what was most interesting is you're getting all these sort of machinations that you see in soccer. And I don't follow soccer too closely, but I was watching it down the end of this season because, well, we're in a global pandemic. I've got nothing else to watch. And I was messaging you and other friends that follow soccer. And I was just saying, hey, there's two games left in the season. Can you explain to me every way how your team makes, you know, the Champions League or how my team can stay in the league? And you're saying, well, Sean, you need this guy to win, this guy to lose, and then this guy to, like, win by two goals and X, Y, Z. And the same thing was happening with your team. And obviously, it's more than just two teams that are going for spots. You've got everyone going for spots. And I think what was interesting when it came to having a play-in tournament is that because instead of just having one spot available at the eighth seed, you've got two spots available with the play-in tournament and it's not a matter of just getting in. You, like It's not a matter of, look, you're both tied for the eighth seed, one team gets it because they win the tiebreaker. It was a matter of there's two spots available to get into a tournament. So there was heaps of stuff going on and we were all watching. Look, there was the Memphis-Milwaukee game at the end and Giannis was suspended and it's like, oh, well, Memphis are probably going to win. And then there was the Phoenix. Who did Phoenix play in the last game of the season to get in? Who did we play? We played Dallas, didn't we? We played Dallas, and that, and that was a good game. And then, obviously, there was the Brooklyn-Portland game, which was, like, incredibly exciting. And even though Brooklyn essentially had nothing to play for, uh, they really went all out and went crazy in that game. And it was one of my most favorite games of the bubble, I would say. that was It was great to see two teams just go nuts. And Damian Lillard obviously doing Damian Lillard things. So I think what hopefully a mid-season tournament can bring is more games like that where you're seeing all these guys need all these weird requirements to get into whatever it may be, whether make it into the mid-season tournament or whether it's to like win maybe the semi-final, like second leg of a semi-final uh, in a NBA preseason tournament to face some other team in like whatever the final is. It's, it's just exciting. And I love all the byproducts of just having a one play in tournament. And they're obviously, of course, going to follow if you have a full mid-season tournament. One of the things that Mark Stein mentioned, um, I think he was on the, the Chris Mannix podcast, uh, and he mentioned in the discussion that part of the reason why the, why the playing tournament and the mid-season tournament have garnered 
some interest is because they go some way to rectifying the feel that some of the NBA regular season games don't matter. And that speaks to exactly what you just mentioned. Like in years gone past where, you know, and obviously, you know, the bubble environment and the pandemic kind of like shakes things up. But in years gone past, Phoenix wouldn't have been involved in this in any meaningful capacity. But because there's that extra spot, it's like if we could just get to nine, like, you know, mm. it's like the dumb and dumber, like, oh, so you're telling me there's a chance. But if we can just get to nine, then we might be able to make it into the plane. And you know, it's like Memphis is going to drop and New Orleans is predicted by everyone. I think like, I think in March, New Orleans had like a 70% chance, according to ESPN projections of making the playoffs. And that didn't happen. Yeah. And then Dame goes supernova. And all of these things are kind of possible and all of these things hold significance. It, it matters that Devin Booker, you know, kind of like propelled the Suns to an eight no record and, and to half a game shy of the bubble because there was a chance that he could make the playoffs. It doesn't really matter if, you know, if, if that's not there. So mm-hmm. it adds in all these different permutations um, that can be kind of put in mm-hmm. and, and and spice up the what can sometimes be like a bit of a, a bit of a, a dull race involving, you know, a, a dull time of season involving like the nine and the ten seeds. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I think it'd be really cool. I think you see it in in European um, soccer competitions as well. That like once you do get to this would be with reference to the mid-season tournament. Once you do sort of get past the early rounds when everyone stops playing their youth players or their reserve players or whatever. Um, and like we're seeing now with the Champions League quarterfinals and semifinals, it's some super, super exciting stuff. Mm. Um, and it's it's thick, it's fast, it's like you know, it's it's all um, it's all happening. And I think that the NBA would be served well by um, by implementing one or both of these. It looks like the planning would be the more likely, the more likely. Um, yeah. Addition. to be implemented at the moment but yeah I, th- I think it'd be a really good a really good addition yeah yeah of course and obviously check out Dante's article in the Medium blog um, Dante that's everything for me that's everything for me too go Suns <laughs>